This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. This week, I sit down with the tender, wise, and passionate Caitlin Sheese. You've heard it said, religion and politics do not mix. But the reality is, our faith, and in my life and Caitlin's life, that faith is Christianity. It informs the way we engage with the world. And the word politics comes from an ancient Greek word meaning affairs of the city. If our faith informs much of how we engage with the world, it will certainly inform how we believe the affairs of our cities should be played out. However, all too often, modern Christians have reversed their faith and politics allowing how they believe the affairs of our cities should be handled to inform how they follow and interact with Jesus. Today, Caitlin shares how she became an author and doctoral student studying political theology, ethics, and biblical interpretation. Then she dives into cherry-picking verses and good political theology. She talks about biblical principles to apply to our perspectives on political matters and how we view scripture well and misuse scripture in American politics. If this conversation provides insight, encouragement, or hope when considering your engagement with faith and politics, please share it with a friend or family member. I deeply believe Caitlin's work and insight on this topic is not only needed, but it is filled with wisdom and tenderness that will benefit other followers of Jesus and those who don't profess our faith. Caitlin, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Amber, for having me. Yeah, we were talking briefly last week at your launch, and I said, you should have been the one I finally did in person because (laughs) you're in Durham and I'm in Raleigh, and that rarely happens, as you know. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, because um, Holy Post, where are you guys all recording from? So everyone else is up in like the Chicago area in Wheaton, Illinois. Okay. Um, So sometimes I go up there and do stuff, but for the most part, I am the lone one that's, that's down here in the South. So, I mean, it's nice that you get to go up there sometimes, right? To do some of the recording. Well, again, we're not here to talk about that. So um, I'm going to jump in with, I really like to hear a little bit about people's early faith journey, just how they first came to know Christ uh, in those early years. Yeah. So it's funny. I feel like when I was an adult, I told a version of this story that said, you know, oh, I grew up in the church, but I really didn't, you know, know Jesus until I was, you know, 16 or 17. I went to a youth conference. I had this very significant spiritual experience. And that's all true. But I do kind of think that as a young adult, I had this idea of like, oh, it would be a more dramatic story if I said I became a teenager. I became a Christian as a teenager. Um, And I think the reality is that I became a Christian at a really young age. Mm -hmm. Um, When I grew up and I was in seminary and I started working in children's ministry, 
this also changed how I told the story because I started to see that it really can be true that young children know Jesus um, and are Mm -hmm. changed and are indwelled by the Holy spirit. And so looking back on my life from that perspective, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. My mom often worked in churches that we went to. My dad was in the military. So we moved all the time and she had trained to be a counselor, but getting relicensed in every state is kind of a pain. And so she mostly worked in churches doing, you know, women's ministry, administrative roles, sometimes children's ministry. So I was in the church all the time and I was really, really young when I, when I told my parents, I wanted to, you know, the language I had at the time was accept Jesus into my heart. And I, again, look back and I think, no, I think that was real. Like my parents would say, you got on the school bus in kindergarten and you were like worried about sharing the gospel with kids in your class. And like, you really, you really wanted to know Jesus and you wanted other people to know Jesus. So I think I was really young um, and I'm thankful for two parents who not only have loved Jesus my whole life, but have loved Jesus with their lives. Like I mm. watch two people not only really faithfully serve others and and glorify God in their work, but also as I've gotten older and I've kind of questioned some things that I was taught growing up or reevaluated theological positions or political positions. I have two parents who have been doing that too from this real place of look, if I keep asking questions, I will find God's goodness at the bottom. And that, that security to do that, I am so thankful for because I have peers who I think were taught a version of the faith that was actually really fragile and they mm-hmm. grew up and had questions and it kind of fell apart. And I look back and I think not only did I have parents who I have this strong memory of being in the back seat of a car, like really late at night because my mom wanted to give a gift to someone who she, she didn't, she wanted it to be a secret, this like kind of extravagant gift they were giving someone in the church who was in need. And I have that like embodied Mm. experience of like seeing my parents really sacrifice for other people, really like actually genuinely love Jesus and believe the gospel and then be really open to me asking questions and, and kind of like fighting sometimes in way, you know, teenage normal stuff, but also in, in real ways of kind of grappling together with big questions about the faith from the time I was pretty young. It's such a gift, Caitlin, right? I mean, I see people untangling that all around me. And I think that's the thing, you know, you're like, okay, keep going to Jesus with that. Keep going to Jesus with that. Because what you're really trying to untangle from is not Jesus. It's a version of Christianity that is not real Christianity. Like, Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. <laughs> All the things. Um, and we could definitely talk about that as our <laughs> common friend, Karen Swallow Pryor was just recently on and we were talking oh, about good. just that separation yeah. of that, how there really needed to be a conversion experience talk when that became mm-hmm. um, popular, quote unquote. Yet then we did the exact same thing as not having a cur- conversion experience. We swung all the pendulum yes. all the way to the opposite side where it was like, if you didn't have a dramatic conversion, you felt like you were like less saved or something. Yes. It's so bizarre. Yes. So tell me this, at some point you became to the place where it's like, you loved politics and you mm-hmm. loved theology. And I just, I kind of want to know how that became a part <laughs> of your faith experience, because as my friend, Amy, whose show you've been on said, okay, you're a woman and you talk <laughs> about faith. And you talk about politics, which are like three (laughs) no-nos. Yep. Yeah. Just really, really bad. Yeah. Um, Or really, really great if you're someone like me, because I'm like, yes, it's all a lie. That is not true. (laughs) Good, good. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I grew up really being interested in politics and law. I mean, from the time I was in middle school, I was like, I'm going to go to law school. That's kind of the plan I had had. 
And I um, majored initially in politics and policy in undergrad, and then I changed my major to history. But still, both of those were really kind of an interest in politics. And I went to Liberty University, which people might be familiar as a school in Virginia, where I was taught by Karen Swallow Pryor. Mm-hmm. And it's a school that is is really deeply involved in the history of the moral majority in American evangelical history. And when I went there, that history didn't feel so live. That was kind of more of like a 70s, 80s thing. Um, I just knew it was a big Christian school near me and it had a law school. So that was intriguing. And I was interested in policy. And, and I get there and about two years into my program, the 2016 election was really starting to heat up. And the president at the time, Jerry Falwell Jr., who's the son of Jerry Falwell Sr., who was big deal in American evangelical political world for many years, um, he was a really early and really enthusiastic supporter of Donald Trump, one of the first evangelical supporters. And not only that, I mean, it kind of became a, a national issue, right? My school was constantly in the media because it was connected to this person who had really involved themselves in the election. But also because the leadership of the school was really interested in the election and really especially interested in the Republican Party in relationship to Mm -hmm. the Republican Party, there were tons of politicians on campus. There were a lot of like news commentators, pundits, activists, and and almost entirely from the conservative end of the political spectrum. To keep their tax-exempt status, they technically had to allow other presidential candidates to come. So Bernie Sanders actually came and spoke while I was a student. So there was some like other folks on campus. Oh, but interesting. There was national media on campus because, mm-hmm. you know, Ted Cruz announced his, his candidacy for the presidency at Liberty. Um, Trump was there a few times, all these big deal figures. And so for many of us, it was just a in your face kind of thing, not only the political side of it, of all these politicians and these questions of policy and who to vote for are really in the front of my face. But most of the time when we were exposed to this, we would go to what was our equivalent of chapel three times a week, sing a few worship songs, and then this politician or commentator or activist would get up on stage and talk. At chapel. And so at chapel, yeah. Oh. And so and we had renamed it, it was called convocation, in part because they wanted to allow non-Christian speakers to come, which is great. But we still worshiped at the beginning. It still was sort of organized like a church service. And so it really didn't just bring the politics to the front of our minds. It brought the relationship between our faith and politics really close to mind. Because Mm. in the national media, it was this is the Christian school and the Christian position is supporting Donald Trump. And so it really it forced me to grapple with some questions right at this time in your life when you're grappling with all these other big questions about what Mm -hmm. I believe theologically and what my place is in the world. And then honestly, when I graduated... I kind of thought I'm done with that. Um, mm-hmm. Dr. Pryor was was my teacher my last semester teaching a writing class. So I had started doing a little bit of writing, but I went to seminary, which is its own long story of kind of God really redirecting me to seminary instead of law school, which is a wonderful thing to do. But I felt very clearly I should go to seminary. And I really thought I'm leaving that all behind me. Like that was my interest before. I also think I had kind of a messed up idea about wow. the sacred and the secular. I kind of thought, yeah. oh, I'm leaving the secular stuff and I'm doing the the sacred thing. And then my first semester of seminary was the 2016 election happened that semester. And I was surrounded by, you know, peers in my program. I I didn't know what I was going to do with a seminary degree, but my peers very often knew they were going to go into pastoral ministry. The program I was in was overwhelmingly people that were going to be pastors. And they were grappling with this question of not only some of the bigger moral, ethical, theological questions at the heart of this election, but they were really also grappling with, as a pastor, what do I do? I feel like this is affecting my people. I feel like there's some spiritual forces mm-hmm. here, but I don't know what my role is. I don't know what resources are available. 
So when I spent most of my first couple of years of seminary reading everything I could get my hands on to answer some of these questions, and I started writing about it mostly because I just thought, I know I can't convince my peers in this program to read the 50 books I read this semester about this question. Maybe I can write something more accessible and just say, here are some suggestions. Here are some ideas. I'm not an expert on this, but this is kind of what I'm thinking. And then somewhere in the midst of all that research, I started going, I think this is the rest of my life. I think I'm supposed to do this forever. <laughs> I think I need to apply to PhD programs and really commit to learning everything I can about how Christians have thought about politics throughout history. Because I think there are resources wow. available to us that, that we're unaware of, and I want to bring them back to the church. This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader, Where You're From, and discover how their life experiences and expertise even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's where, y-a-from.org. I'm Russell Berry, reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. Well, so the thing about the 2016 election was it felt sometimes like so like the majority were pro Donald Trump, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it mm -hmm. felt that way. While you were in seminary, were you coming up against people who really were like, wait a minute, I, I'm not for this. Like I'm not, I'm for policy, yes, but not necessarily the candidate because of a moral mm -hmm. perspective, because that totally intrigues me. Because I would talk to yeah. people and they looked at me like I had eight heads. <laughs> and I was like- how do we reconcile this? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that was one of the big questions a lot of people were asking was not only there was a diversity of opinion um, at my seminary for sure about who okay. people were voting for, but this That's question, yeah, but this question of a candidate's character and their policy and the relationship between those was very live. But I also think underlying that was this larger question about what does my political participation mean? Like, what is it for? What am I trying to do? Because what mm. I think a lot of people were realizing at that time was I've never thought about that before. I've just sort of kind of been on autopilot. I was in churches and, and Christian schools and institutions that just sort of said, generally speaking, vote for the Republican Party. That's the more Christian yep. idea. And maybe you had thought a little bit about abortion. That seems like a really important issue. So maybe that's kind of your motivation. But you hadn't really thought before about what does my vote for this candidate mean? Is mm -hmm. it a, I mean, an endorsement of everything? Is it a strategic intervention? Is and, and not just my vote, but then it spawned these larger questions about, you know, for me, I think a lot of people were asking, okay, I don't think I can vote for this candidate, but I really care about some issues that people are telling me mean I should vote for this candidate. For example, abortion. Mm -hmm. Are there other things I can do? Like, what is my political life supposed to look like? What does yeah. it mean for me to love my neighbor? I mean, really important question too, like if I have 10 things I care about and I can't vote for one person that really represents all 10 of those things, what do I do then? So it was like, yes. under, it was making us realize to me, it was making us realize we didn't have a political theology. We had just kind of been on autopilot and we hadn't asked some deeper questions about what is the meaning of government? What does it mean to be a citizen in a country in which we have great political power? How do we use it? Um, those are questions that Christians have thought about for a really long time. 
we just hadn't often looked to, for those answers. We hadn't asked those questions. We just kind of had gone with whatever we had kind of been handed down from the previous generation and, and they hadn't asked those questions either. Wow. This is why you've written books about this, Caitlin, because you basically <laughs> just described me in a nutshell. So I'm your your perfect reader. <laughs> good, I am your good. target audience. Good. <laughs> because it is true that, I mean, yes, I was a young voter at that time still as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it, it seemed easier in the few presidencies that I had participated in prior to 2016 yeah. to just say, okay, I can at least feel good about this decision, even though in the other camp, there are things that I would prefer that my candidate of choice also did. Because, you know, I knew I had asked enough questions to know, well, and you've just lived enough life to know no person or policy or, I mean, Senate, whatever is going to be representing everything you as an individual agree with or believe. So tell me this, because something that you talk a lot about is just kind of how scripture came in to -hmm. politics in America and that it has been used well, and it has also been misused. And so will you maybe give one or two examples of of both Mm -hmm. of those, you know, how has it been used well? And then how has it been misused? Yeah. I mean, I do think it's important for for American Christians in particular to realize it has so shaped our political vocabulary, yes. our political lives from the very beginning of our, our country's history. And sometimes I think one of the things that kind of distinguishes when it's used well and it's not is very often it was so much the water people were swimming in that they just kind of picked up this language. Like it was just helpful, moral language that can kind mm-hmm. of be directed towards anything. I want to evoke a sense of, of meaning and purpose and like a divine purpose. I'll just go to this, this language that people, especially earlier in our history, right. overwhelmingly were familiar with and kind of associated that with this kind of, you know, significant moral foundation. And even today, people love, even people who are not Christians often love hearing language that sounds like there's a gravitas <laughs> to biblical language. And so it's powerful. And that can mean it's really dangerous too. Um, one early example of, of real misuse that, um, happened early in our country's history, but then later, much later became more significant to us is a really early speech that the governor of the Massachusetts Bay colony gave called a model of Christian charity. John Winthrop, um, gave this speech and, or we think he did, we're not really sure if he ever gave it or, or, or if he did it on the ship or if he, you know, there's all these kind of like lore about it. But in this speech, he quotes Jesus's words from the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be a city upon a hill, Mm -hmm. and uses it to describe this community that he is a part of and that they're beginning this journey towards moral righteousness. He draws on other Old Testament passages in particular to describe God kind of giving them land to possess. They're literally entering, you know, what is now the United States of America. So there's not only misuse there because he's kind of appropriating promises from the Old Testament, mm-hmm. promises to Israel of a given land and sort of just saying, he even says, I, God has ratified this covenant with me. <laughs> it's like, you've decided you are in a covenant with God. You've decided that these promises to Israel are now promises to you. And, oh, wow. and you've really decided that this land that you want is now land that God has given you, which is not the same thing as just, I'm doing this thing and I'm going to go to this place and make a new colony there. Um, And this one little phrase, city upon a hill, instead of, as Jesus is giving it, as this description of the people of God being a witness Mm -hmm. to God in all of creation, then later gets picked up, not just in Winthrop's speech, but then later by JFK and Ronald Reagan. And then every president since Ronald Reagan until Donald Trump uses this phrase to kind of describe America as this shining light to the nations. 
And, and it's powerful for that reason. We like feeling like we're the good guy people that are, are going to kind of show the world what's right. And yet it's really kind of twisting this, this statement, not only that Jesus didn't give to America, but gave to the people of God. But this statement comes right after the Beatitudes, where he says, blessed mm. are the poor in spirit and the persecuted and the, you know, so it's not this, this statement of our success and prosperity and this, you know, right. shining city on a hill is, and Reagan even says like, I mean it to be this like place of flourishing commerce and this wonderful, strong country. And like, that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. So that's a good example of misuse. A good example, I think of, of positive use. And this is um, a passage that gets used over and over and again in American history is the black church in American history has often gone to the story of the Exodus and seen not only seen themselves in this story as the literal enslaved people as Israel was enslaved, but has made a really profound theological point with this story, which is to say, not only are the people of God united across time and around the world, mm -hmm. so we can look in these stories, the, the thing that John Winthrop actually got right, we can look in these stories and see right. things for us. We just have to be clear about what is different as well. The Black church often, especially during the period of emancipation and then later during the civil rights movement, looked at this story of the Exodus and said, God is a liberating God who cares mm -hmm. about the poor and the enslaved. And this is the kind of work God does in the world. And so we are going to use that as, as both comfort um, because mm -hmm. we can relate to this people experiencing this great suffering and motivation. And and motivation to say, look, mm -hmm. God liberates. And so we can do faithful work in the world for our liberation. And then I think really importantly, very often would say, but there are some means we don't take because we are not ultimately securing our own liberation. We're not going to use violence. Mm. We're not going to kind of um, do unjust things to, to achieve justice because we ultimately believe in the resurrection of the body. Like we believe Ugh. strongly that God ultimately is the one that brings liberation. So we are faithful in our response to that, to seek liberation for us, to yeah. seek the flourishing of our communities and justice for all. But we aren't going, this is how this is how the civil rights movement was able to have, be really insistent on nonviolence. That's a oh. ridiculous thing to do if you don't believe in the resurrection of the body. But so that's a good example of, of appropriating those promises, but then mm -hmm. not not appropriating the specific promises the way that Winthrop did, but saying this is who God was in the past. And so we can believe that that's who God will be in the future and the present as well. Gosh, that's such a wonderful example because I mean, we do hear stuff just tossed around and listen, I mean, me and even teaching middle schoolers at times, I'm like leaving there sometimes going, Ooh, did I mm -hmm. say that in such a way mm -hmm. where they're going to, you know, cl cling on to something that they shouldn't have clung on to. And I mean, part of that is going back and trusting the spirit that he has led you in your preparation yeah. But I mean, you do have to be really, really careful, right? Because we don't want to misuse the word. Right. Yeah. It's, I do really think our history should give us a lot of caution <laughs> to say that yes. most of the people who we can look back and see misusing it, some of them might have really explicit. I mean, we see this even today. People can sometimes know like, oh, someone someone find me a Bible verse <laughs> to go along with this thing. Right. But a lot of times in our history, people were very genuinely trying mm -hmm. to faithfully follow God and they were wrong. And that should yeah. give us some some appropriate humility for ourselves, too. That's right. Because, I mean, we are still humans, and so we need to be able to admit, okay, we don't want history to repeat itself here. Right, right. <laughs> so it's cautionary yeah, and maybe a little bit prophetic as well. Yeah, <laughs> anyways, yeah. Okay, so tell me this. When you talk about, like, good political theology versus what you just said, which is this cherry-picking of verses, like, what do yeah. you really— mean by that? Because I do think that we have not, and, and we meaning me included, it can be so hard to 
start asking these questions about our faith and politics and our use of the word, and then not just ask the questions, but stick around long enough to begin <laughs> kind of dividing them out and feeling the ickiness um, of what that looks like. So what do you mean by good political theology versus cherry picking? Yeah, that's such a good way to put it because um, I'll have a lot of people that will say like, okay, well, how can I use the Bible well then if it's been misused in all these ways? And the first mm-hmm. thing I always say is you need to read it more and you need to read it before you come to the place of this immediate political demand is pressing upon you. Because typically mm-hmm. what we do is an election's upcoming. Okay, I have to vote between these two candidates or there's a policy. I'm trying to decide what's the Christian response to this policy. And what we often will do is like go to the concordance and be like, okay, what verses cover this? And not only is there like all of this kind of um, cherry picking just inherent in that, right? Because you've decided what words in the concordance you think are relevant to this political question. Um, And then you often then, because you're using a concordance and the concordance says, oh, this word is used in this one verse. You go to this one verse and you're like, okay, well, that's what it says. You might have not have looked at the whole story that's that's around it or the whole letter or the whole genre. You're not thinking about any of those larger questions. Whereas if we said, okay, just like when we have to come up with a theology of who is Jesus, mm. we read all of scripture. We want to be formed by all of scripture. Um, we rely on other people in the faith to help us. We rely on people who have studied before us. And then we look at across genre and across the canon, across all of time. Here is this you know, more systematic picture of who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. We need to do that with our with our political theology. We need to say, okay, we're thinking from Genesis to Revelation. Mm-hmm. We're thinking, what does the Old Testament say to us? What does the New Testament say to us? We're asking Christians in other times and places because all, mm-hmm. the demands of our time and place can really bias us towards certain conclusions. But other Christians in other times and places, their words can make us really uncomfortable <laughs> in good ways. And so I think we have to look really holistically and we have to ask broader mm. questions. Like what does scripture not just say about this political issue? And there are a lot of books that will get written this way, right? Like, or voter guides, you know, here's the 10 verses that cover this political issue. Well, that's really asking a question of scripture that it doesn't necessarily intend to answer. It might, there might be really helpful verses for that particular political issue. But what if instead we said, okay, it's quite clear that scripture has a lot to say about how human communities should be structured and what it looks like for Mm. a flourishing human life to exist in that community. So then let's just ask those broad questions. What does authority mean? What do we see about what it means to have authority before the fall and then after the fall? What is the effect of sin on leaders and human communities? Like, let's ask those kind of broad questions. And then I think when we get to the the really kind of nitty gritty stuff, because people might say, oh, okay, that's great. Let's have this like beautiful political theology about human communities and authority. Right. But like, I have to go in a, in a voting booth and I have to answer some questions or I have to show up to this meeting or I have to have this conversation with my aunt at Thanksgiving. And like, it's about a certain policy. What I then think would be really helpful is for us to ask different questions of our political lives as well, to not start with the questions as they're given to us, which tend to be, who do you vote for for president? Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Mm-hmm. What policies do you support? What if instead we said, well, okay, what are the things that scripture demands of me in my neighborhood, in my family, mm-hmm. in this little place that I, in the particular city I live in, in the school district that's near me, in the church I belong to, and started there and said, okay, I think scripture has a lot to say. Let's say you're you're thinking about, um, you know, abortion. You're like, I've, I've always been told I really should care about abortion in public life. Well, at the heart of that, I think for most people is a concern for vulnerable children, for the unborn, for mothers who are in desperate circumstances. So what if we started not with, okay, let's pit back and forth, which which party helps us better achieve that goal or which person right? to vote for? Those questions could become relevant at some point, but let's start with, 
okay, you and your neighborhood, Mm -hmm. what does this clear demand of scripture for us to care for the vulnerable, especially women and children, what does that mean for me in my community, in my neighborhood? Is there a crisis pregnancy center I can support? Is there a local regulation that provides, you know, real resources to mothers who might be trying to make a decision about that? Are there things that I can do that display to my community and to my neighborhood that I care about this deeper demand that scripture has placed on me, not that I'm letting kind of the political mm-hmm. framework as it's given to me shape how I read scripture. I'm I'm open to different things. I'm open to my vote at the national level, not representing how much I care about this because I've made a decision that that other something else, some other question that scripture cares about, maybe how much scripture talks about how we how we treat the foreigner. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's really determining my national vote for president, but maybe some of my local votes are really representative of this concern I have for the unborn. Or maybe my political advocacy Mm -hmm. in in my neighborhood or my local level really demonstrates that. So we need to think, I think, wider, not only about the questions we ask of scripture, but then think wider about our own political lives. It's not limited to this one vote. It's like, what does your whole life look like in Mm. your community, in your neighborhood? And how can different facets of that life really represent the demands of scripture on us to, to do a variety of things, to care for the vulnerable in a variety of circumstances? Oh my goodness. I just want to say so much, but I'm not going to. (laughs) But I do think that as if anyone's listening, who is a seasoned studier of the word, like this is where like thematic study comes in. You know, I mean, I remember just going through and studying like the word kingdom from Mm. Genesis to Revelation. And it's that arc. It's like what you said. There are these themes throughout that when you start building on that, it does give you this undergirding for what you, you know, what you decide politically, educationally, how you lead your family. But so often we are like clinging to the one sermon we heard or the 10 sermons we heard from the same person. And I think there's great value in that. But yeah, reading the word and having this overarching understanding is like invaluable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In decision making. So tell me this, when it comes to like, like you're not, you're in your books, both of them, you're not really trying to prescribe these specific solutions to hot button topics, <laughs> because that goes against what you even just yeah. said. We can't come at things and just say abortion's wrong. So I must vote over here. Right. Even though that's what we see so mm-hmm. often happening. And so tell me like when someone's having these conversations with someone who differs from them politically. Yeah. Yet many times who I differ from politically actually are believers. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but, but like you, that that's not where I was 15 years ago. But how do you really encourage people to engage in those mm-hmm. conversations to kind of take the feeling of, you know, okay, they've just labeled me as something that I'm not. And instead of returning that with anger, just yeah. trying to engage in a thoughtful conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is, to the best of your ability, this is not always possible, but to the yeah. best of your ability, trying to make sure that you can have opportunities to have these conversations that are not in a high temperature kind of context. So yeah. you're at the Thanksgiving table, 
you know, someone from your church, someone in your family says something that you really disagree with politically, uh, maybe they saw your social media post and they're like, I'm going to get you for this thing you said. Mm. If it's possible to redirect that conversation so that later when you're not in the heat of the moment, it can come back up again. Maybe when you're in the, you're sitting in comfier chairs, <laughs> you're in a, you're in a less high stress, you know, the Thanksgiving dinner table or the pew immediately after a sermon, or there are, there are certain contexts where we're primed to be feeling attacked. Like our identity right. is being attacked, our sense of community, our values. Um, so trying to redirect towards and, and planning ahead to say, before we even get to that moment where you're kind of coming at me based, based on something I said or posted, we've already had conversations in, in lower mm. temperature environments. And the other thing that I would say that's really important, and I I do not follow this uh, perfectly myself <laughs> at all, because I think I have all these great ideas. I have all these thoughts. I'm going to convince you. We're going to really- As know, we all do. And I have the facts and I have the- And most of the time when we're having these disagreements, we are not having just a logical disagreement about facts or arguments or data. That's not what's happening. Anyone who's been in this conversation knows that's not what's happening. It that's really right. is this larger story, I believe- this sense of identity or community that I have, I feel like you're you're assigning a label to me that I don't mm -hmm. like. I feel like you're attacking people I want to defend. Um, so instead, asking disarming questions can be really helpful. One of the things I have found, especially among Christians, when we're having a disagreement and scripture starts getting pitted back and forth, you know, here's my cherry picked verse and I have two more against yours and here's three more, <laughs> is instead to say, what about that verse sounds like good news to you? What's appealing mm. here? I, I really want to understand, like, why is that important to you? Not in a in a gotcha way, but in a, okay, that clearly matters a lot mm. to you. You pulled this verse out for a reason. What's what's so good about that to you? Um, or sometimes saying, I saw someone do this recently, and it was so beautiful to watch, kind of a heated conversation. And someone just stopped and said, thank you so much for caring so much about this. It was so disarming because it wasn't done in a strategic, tactical. It was genuine. It was like, wow. We really disagree about this, but the thing we agree on is that this matters. And mm. so just like, thank you for caring so much about it, which really did like the, I often think it takes the temperature down. It lowers the temperature. It yeah. Does. To just kind of go, oh, wow. Like Even the other person just like, they had taken in a big breath, like they were ready to keep going and they were like, oh, wait, what? Oh, thank you. That's, you know, mm. so finding ways to get at what's really underneath um, in a way that doesn't feel like you're second guessing their motives or you're trying to distract the conversation, but really that just says, I want to understand why you care about this and, yeah. and where you're coming from on this. And then I think the second part of that, that's really important is sometimes people will hear me talk about this and they'll go, oh yeah, my aunt or my pastor or my Bible study leader, they're really, they're not being logical about this. They have all of these stories and beliefs and values and it's really motivating them. And like, thank God they have me because I am the rational, logical, you know, one. And so the second part of this is going, before, after, during those conversations, finding good questions to ask yourself to go, okay, I, I was yeah. most emotionally hot when they said this. Why? Let's like spend some time afterwards evaluating. What about my sense of identity and community was threatened by that? And how do I evaluate how to respond differently next time? Or what story about the world do I really believe when it comes to this policy? Like if I say I support this particular policy, mm. What story about the world, what's wrong with the world and what will fix the world is kind of motivating that. And even if, even if you say, and I think that story's right, like, I think it's really informed by the gospel. It can be helpful for you to work through that, to say, 
is it a little bit informed by the gospel, but it's also informed by this other story, if I'm being Mm -hmm. honest with myself? And can I do some excavating work to see where that is? If I want other people to do that, I need to do that myself. And it also can encourage other people. If you're willing to say in a conversation, hey, I have to admit, like, when you said that thing, it felt like you were attacking these people. And I I feel like I'm part of those people. It can also open up sometimes for the other person to go, oh, wow. Like, first of all, how (laughs) like vulnerable and kind of, you know, strange for you to admit something like that. It can also provoke them to ask some questions. Maybe later they go, oh, well, if that was true of them, is it not true of me? Or so I think, you know, all of that, I think the goal is lower the temperature and ask more questions, be more curious about other Mm -hmm. people. It's really hard to be angry at someone when you're curious about them. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I always think about how much, you know, how many questions Jesus asked, right? Like he was rarely, Jesus was rarely like just coming at people with answers. And part of that is just, part of that is that Socratic type of atmosphere that he Mm -hmm. lived in where you did ask questions to get people to dig deeper and that back and forth. And I always think like, we need to go back to that, including myself, like we need to be more yeah, curious yes. and ask more questions and get to the, the the deep down, you know, heart motive. Cause like you said earlier, I don't think we, I don't know a lot of times really what I think yeah. deep down, I've just decided this thing irritates yep. me and I don't like yep. it. And then I go off about it. And then three months later, I'm still going off about it on someone. And I don't even know why. <laughs> It's like, it's hard to admit that, but it's true. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me this, when you engage in these, in these places, as you do all the time, what do you find is some of the hardest, like, what are some of the hardest things you feel like you come up against in this faith, theology, and political space that you exist in? Yeah. I mean, I do really think one of the hardest things is the degree to which so many of us across the political spectrum, theological spectrum, are motivated by fear. Fear Mm. is such a powerful motivator. And there's even been research done that shows that, you know, when you are shown kind of a scary or threatening scene, maybe in a political ad, maybe in a TV show, Mm. the chemicals that are released in your brain it is as if you are actually facing that threat. So you watch a political ad that says this person that you know you might consider voting for is going to cause all this chaos and havoc and violence in our communities and all these scary images pop up to show you what they'll do. You're not really able to take that in without mm. having a physical response to that threat. Like your body has been made in a really beautiful way to respond to threats mm-hmm. to you, but it can be leveraged for political gains. It can be manipulated. And I think if we're being honest, even in really small ways, if it's not this big threat, this idea, again, that that my identity is threatened or that this relationship might be lost, like there is fear yeah. that the community that I belong to isn't the community I thought it is, that maybe this election will just completely destroy us. Like there are all these fears, some of which are, are manufactured and manipulated, some of which are very real. Mm-hmm. And the difficult thing is to not say, and this is what I think some people have said, is let's just stop feeling stuff. Like, let's get to the logical. Let's get to the rational. Stop all of the ways in which Mm. our kind of bodies and emotions are playing a role in this. And I think the Christian response is actually to say, our bodies are good. Our emotions are good. Mm -hmm. Let's figure out what it looks like to have them oriented correctly. Let's Mm. think about what practices the Christian church has historically used to discipline our bodies, to use our bodies to draw us closer to God, to have practices and habits that remind us of our need, our dependence, of our need for repentance. Mm. Let's think about what kinds of stories 
can help us train our emotions? How can our emotions be directed well and correctly? Because I don't want people engaging in public life without the fear and the hate, but also with no emotion. I want us to be motivated by love and hope and joy. And that's a very different response to this problem of fear than the one that says, okay, your fears are, are manufactured and manipulated. So just stop fearing them. Instead, it's, okay, what happens when real love for your neighbor meets that fear? What happens when real hope for the resurrection meets that fear? What happens when the joy mm. of the Lord meets that fear? That's a, that's able to to defeat fear a lot better than just stop feeling things, which mm-hmm. is, I don't think, the right response. But that is the real challenge, is how do we mm. meet the emotions that are manufactured in us for political gain? How do we meet them with the resources of the church that says, actually, this is what it looks like to be a faithful Christian in public life, to be motivated by hope and love and joy. Um, and doing that in the world that we're in is really hard. Yeah. Well, and don't you think as well, it's interesting to hear anyone say, don't pay attention to those emotions. Don't have that when that's exactly what is trying to be manufactured in us. Yeah. So you almost sometimes have the same p- people telling you not to... Um, react to those, but on the flip side of the coin, they're the ones trying to um, evoke that in us yes. through media or whatever it may be. Yeah. And it, and that's why I just think we have missed how many resources the church actually has. Like we are far from the first Christians to exist in a politically tumultuous time. Amen to that. And there have been Christians, there have been Christians who were, who capitulated to great yep. evil that we can learn from, but there are also Christians who remained faithful under much more difficult circumstances than we are in. Yep. And we need to ask like, what prayers were they praying? What practices yep. were they doing? What scripture was comforting to them? And there are incredible resources I have up on my wall over here, a copy of the the Barman Declaration, which is a document mm. written during the Nazi regime in Germany by faithful Christians. It was their theological response to the large German church really capitulating to the Nazi regime. And it's this beautiful theological document that if you mm. don't know its context, I mean, I first put it up on my wall in 2016, and people kind of thought I was making a, a statement about our current political environment. <laughs> But, but it's remarkably relevant to just say, wow. you know, what is what is ultimately true is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And that shapes our, our political lives, our public lives. We don't capitulate to any ruler as if they are God's representative on earth. We already have that. That's Jesus. And, and so it's amazing how much that particular document that does come out of, I mean, real suffering. I mean, people probably mm-hmm. know about people like Bonhoeffer who lost right. his life for his resistance to the, to the Nazi regime. We have resources like that. We we know. Mm. I mean, in the case of Bonhoeffer, we have information about the kinds of practices and prayers and community that mm-hmm. he built. And so for us to kind of say, well, we've got to reinvent the wheel. No one has ever dealt with this before is is really to not have that humility that we need, whether we're yeah. reading scripture or thinking about our, our lives together. Wow. That's powerful. Oh, thank you. Well, let's close with this. As someone who has walked the road of losing community as a result of some things that you wrote and said. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that sometimes can also be the fear for people speaking up and engaging, trying to engage in thoughtful conversation. Uh, What would you say to those people? Because a lot of us stay quiet because um, the loss is great or the risk is great. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that because it has ended up being quite important to me that I can say really truthfully that I have experienced the suffering that comes with rejection from your community, in particular from saying what you just trying to do it as earnestly and genuinely as you can, what you really believe God is saying, 
um, and can both say it's really hard. <laughs> I yeah. empathize with the people who, especially the people who have some kind of of position that they're really worried about losing the pastor, the Bible study leader, the teacher at a church, at a school yeah. that's going, if I say what I think is, is truth, I'm not trying to flip tables. I'm not trying to be radical. I'm just trying to be faithful. And I know if I am, I will, I will lose something. I will at mm-hmm. least risk something significant. It is so hard. Yep. And also, as you know, um, there can be such redemption afterwards. Um, I've just been so thankful for the ways in which both God was so present to me during that suffering. I truly felt like it pushed me to rely on God in ways that I never had before mm. and has really just been faithful to me in the year since then, um, have mm. found just kind of incredible moments of like parallel where I just go, wow, this memory that was so tainted by that experience so perfectly redeemed in relationship with people that have been faithful and good to me. And um, it doesn't work exactly that way for everyone. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It can take a long time. You can be waiting again until the resurrection of the dead for the full redemption yeah. of that. But but I will say one of the things that I really love since we were just talking about Bonhoeffer, he gave this famous speech just before the kind of rise of Hitler in Germany. And people have gone back to the speech a lot because he has this beautiful line about how we need to hear the word of the Lord against ourselves. It's not just for us. It can be against us. But I love a different part of the speech where he says that this man told him that, you know, the church is dead. The church is, is has been crushed wow. by this and it's never coming back. And he said, you know, actually, I think that the pious faithless, the people who pretend to be great Christians, who show up to church, who make a big deal about being very pious, but don't actually have any faith. They'll respond to the church is dying with the church will rise again. Like we will, mm. we'll raise more money. We'll build a bigger program. It'll be great. And I, I fear sometimes that's the response to people who've been hurt by the church. Oh, come on. Like, let's just build something better. Let's do it. Let's keep going. Mm. And he said, actually, the really faithful, their response is, yeah, the church is dying because just like her Lord, the church lives in her dying because God is faithful to his Ooh. people. And that is like, that's, I think the ultimate hope mm. if you are, if you are either fearful of of what you could lose or you have lost ultimately the hope is in the resurrection of the dead and and the promise at the very end of scripture that god will wipe every tear from every eye and make all things new and that's the kind of hope like really robust real hope i actually believe this world will be redeemed and and our bodies will be resurrected and perfected that's the kind of robust hope that has led christians throughout all of history to sacrifice much more than i have ever sacrificed for the sake Mm. of of real goodness and justice well caitlin um Thank you for continuing to look for the good li- goodness of the Lord in the land mm-hmm. of the living, because I think it's can be hard and yeah. some people run and they let that go. And uh, yeah, Jesus is who he says he is. And we can mm-hmm. cling to that even when we feel like everyone around us has left us. And so thank yeah. you for your faithful work and lots of wonderful work ahead for you. I know. Thank you, Amber. You're welcome. Thank you in advance for every listen and every share. If something from this week's conversation with Caitlin stood out to you, I'd love to hear it. Send me a direct message on Instagram or Facebook at Grace Enough Podcast underscore Amber or send me an email at Amber at Grace Enough Podcast dot com. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.